morning. It's, uh, it's difficult to see that, no matter how many times I've watched it, uh, it still just tugs at your heartstrings. Um, it's just not something we're used to seeing. Um, and it's really nothing you can even imagine experiencing until you actually go there, until you can smell the filth on these kids as they hug you and, and see, see what, they call, uh, what they call life. It's just it's very humbling. Uh, good morning. My name is Adam Magenzak, as you've heard. I have no idea <laughs> how to follow that introduction, but it looked fun. <laughs> um, I, I told Derek this morning that, um, you know, this is something we've been trying to do for a while. Our trip was, as you heard, back in March. And so since we're leaving in August, we thought July, hey, four months later might be a good idea to <laughs> start talking about what we did. And so uh, this trip is, or this service has been something that we've been planning for a while. But I told Derek when I agreed to, to preach this morning that the one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to take the whole service hostage and just force you to listen to nothing about except Honduras for 45 whatever minutes we're in here. And so I'm going to attempt to, yes, share our story, uh, but also open up the scripture so that you can be uh, encouraged as you leave here as well. So I hope that's okay. Yes? Even if it's not, that's what I'm doing. All right, John chapter 9, if you have a Bible. By the way, uh, in the video, you saw the uh, little boy with the Domino's hat praying. No offense to you parents, cutest kid in the world. His name is Dennis. The kid is awesome. He actually prayed for us as we left this past trip in March. No idea what he said. Didn't matter. It was amazing. Everyone was crying. It was, it was beautiful. All right, John chapter 9. This is probably in the Gospel of John, one of my favorite stories. Um, it's unique in the fact that it's actually one of the longest continuous put together stories that John actually has in his gospel. There's many movements, there's many different scenes, there's many different characters, but for several verses we sort of get the same glimpse of the same story surrounded by this one individual that we're going to read about in a minute. And so it's a beautiful story and I want to kind of unpack it with you today, but before we get into it I need to sort of give you some background so you can kind of understand what's going on in the setting and the scene. The setting is in the city of Jerusalem. If you know anything about Jewish culture and scripture, Jerusalem was where it was at, where everything was. It was where the center of their worship, life, culture, society, everything centered in Jerusalem. And the time of year that this story takes place is a very important time for the Jewish people. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this feast, this festival, this celebration was important for several different reasons. First of all, it was unique in the fact that it was one of three festivals that the Jews participated in that were called pilgrimage festivals. It required them to pick up their belongings and actually go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. Uh, Passover is another one, which uh, the significance there is amazing as we see uh, in communion. Feast of Weeks is another, and this one, the Feast of Tabernacles. So the city of Jerusalem would have been jam-packed with people. It's always full, but now it's really full. And what they would do, and this is the other reason why this is important, is that this feast, this festival, is a celebration, a time to remember uh, those 40 years of wandering that their forefathers did in the distance between Egypt and the promised land that God promised. For 40 years, they wandered around. And so what they're supposed to do is when they come to Jerusalem, they're supposed to move out of their homes temporarily for a week. And they're supposed to build these temporary shelters. They weren't supposed to be uh, designed to stand very firm. They were supposed to be kind of run down, supposed to be kind of rustic. And it was in order for them to remember the time that their forefathers spent in these temporary shelters 
uh, as God continued to move them towards the promise that he had for them. And so for seven days, the city of Jerusalem, centered around the temple, just has all these what they call booths just all over the place. And so it was just kind of this beautiful but yet ugly scene and they have all these run-down homes where people are living, eating, sleeping, do everything they would normally do in their homes in these booths. And so the, the whole city of Jerusalem would have been jam-packed with people. Very festive, very rejoicing time. And so when we get to this story in John chapter 9, Jesus uh, takes center stage. And anytime Jesus takes center stage and there's a lot of people around, you know that things are going to get interesting, and they certainly do in this story. So pick up with me uh, in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, As he, he being Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, a couple of things we can pick up already from this passage. First of all, this was not some strange guy. This blind man apparently was somebody that the community recognized because he was labeled as somebody being blind from birth. Typically, they didn't carry a sign around telling you, this is when I lost my sight. So he was somebody, maybe he had a regular spot at the temple gates, maybe he had a regular spot at the city gates, maybe he had a typical spot that he sat and begged, but this was somebody that the community recognized. Now you got to remember that because it plays out later in the story. The second thing that you need to remember or keep in mind is that the disciples' question does seem a little strange to us, right? You come up to somebody who is blind, obviously down on their luck, and the first thing the disciples say is, so whose fault is this? right? That, that's not what you want to hear. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? Now, it seems weird to us, but for them, it was a very relevant question, because for them, there was a very direct connection between physical sickness or disease and spiritual sickness. If something was wrong with you physically, especially something like this, to this degree, typically meant that something was wrong with you spiritually, like you've done something to upset God, and this is your punishment. And so this was pretty normal for them, and, and they're trying to get Jesus' opinion on this. And the question even takes a different degree, because since they know this man was blind from birth, their question is, well, who's responsible? Because last time we checked, it's not really possible to sin inside the womb, right? I mean, maybe some moms in here are going to challenge me on that one, but it's really not possible. So if he, he was born this way, then they're trying to figure out, okay, are the, are the parents somehow responsible? Is their sin somehow to blame for this man's suffering? So the question really is not that strange in the setting. But Jesus' answer, as he often does, opens up a whole can of worms. Look at that in verse 3. He said, neither this man nor his parents sin. Now Jesus is not trying to say that they're perfect, but what he's trying to say is that their sin is not what caused this. His blindness is not a result of any kind of sin, but it doesn't get any easier. He says, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That's not really what you want to hear. All of this was done so that the power and the work of God can be displayed. Now, this guy, you can imagine, blind from birth, has had a pretty rough go at it, right? I mean, very dependent on the people around him, 
dependent on the people that even decided to stay around him. Very limited in what he can do. Very limited in what uh, his life is going to be able to be about. Very sad life. And here stands this man, Jesus, who at this point has pretty much established himself as a man who teaches the love and mercy and grace of God. And here he stands telling everyone that this is not the result of any kind of sin, but this is the result of a very carefully laid out plan by God. Now, verse 3 is, I mean, jam-packed with stuff we can talk about. But let me just put your mind at ease. You can think about it later, but the very simple thing that I want you to understand is that Jesus is not trying to, to, to hide something. He's not speaking in code. It's difficult to understand, but Jesus is being very clear. This was done for a very specific reason, so that God's power can be revealed, period, bottom line. As a blind man, how do you hear that? Remember, he's blind. He's not deaf. He's listening to all of this. So how do you take this from Jesus to know that it's not a matter of coincidence that you're blind? It's not a matter of uh, somebody making a bad decision. It's a carefully laid out, purposeful plan from God. It's not the kind of news that you want to hear. It seems a little unfair if we can play that card. Right? Now, even though I don't think anyone in here could probably sympathize with this man on the same level, I think we all kind of understand what it feels like to have an unfair hand dealt to us. Maybe moments or seasons that we go through where nothing seems to go the way we thought it should, we expected it to, we don't get what we think we deserve. We understand what it's like to be dealt an unfair hand. And sometimes pursuing the answers just adds more frustration. There's oftentimes more problems than there are solutions, and we just don't know which way to turn. So we understand what it's like to have an unfair hand dealt. Now, as I've already said, this story is packed with good stuff that we could talk about. I could sit here for hours and talk about it. I'm not. But the one thing that I really want to drive home with you, the one thing that I really want you to hold on to as we go throughout this whole talk, and as I started thinking about all the different things this story really kind of hits at, this is probably the most simplistic point I've ever had in a sermon, okay? So this is, you can walk out of here and remember this, I promise. The point of all of this is that this man even has a story. The point of the story that I want you to get today is that the story exists. Can you remember that? It's very simple. The point of the story is that there even is a story. Think about it. This lowly man, considered an outcast in his culture, in his society, has found a place in God's word, and we're reading about it thousands of years later. That's a miracle. So the point of the story is that the story exists. Even a man like this has found his way in God's story. And the point that I want you to walk out of here with is that you have a place in God's story. Everyone. It's unique. It's different. It's yours. But everyone has a place in the story. When my wife, Holly, who stood here, got married back in 2007, there was a very uh, real understanding between us that in order for this relationship to work, 
we both had to be completely invested in mission work. It wasn't an unspoken agreement. It was a very verbal agreement <laughs> that if you don't want to do this, you probably shouldn't marry me. But it was cool because we both kind of said that. It was like, oh, you think of the same thing? All right, we can get married then. Um, and so we didn't know the, the degree to which we would be committed. We still don't really know the degree to which we'd be committed. But it's very much a, a central part of who we are. She went into nursing to use her nursing in places like Honduras. I went to Atlanta Christian College to get my biblical studies degree to teach Whoever wanted to listen, today it happens to be you, but whoever wanted to listen, I didn't care where it was. And so for both of us, we knew that this was going to be something we wanted to do, but that was it. We didn't know the length of time we were going to be anywhere. We didn't even know where we were going, which sometimes can be important, but all we knew is that we wanted to go. That was it. Going into the marriage, that's all we knew. You see, both of us over the years have had our experiences, even before we met each other, in short-term missions, going to various places all over the world, serving in, in different capacities. And over the years, those short-term trips were great, but we began to realize that they didn't quite satisfy the cravings that we were having, that we, 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 wanted, we wanted more. And I can't tell you that there was a, a big moment where the sky opened and God spoke to us directly and told us that this was going to be the path. It didn't happen. It didn't happen for me. It didn't happen for Holly. The, the simplest answer I can give you as to why we wanted to do this is because everywhere we went, we saw a need, and we just wanted to help. That's it. That's what mission work is. It doesn't have to be this grand call. You see a need, I can help, I want to help. Where can I go? And that was it. And over the years, the short-term trips just didn't quite satisfy the craving. And so we sought after for more. And the year that we were engaged, and even our first year in marriage, for two years, we were looking for somewhere to go. And the problem we were having is that both of our interests are very different. Um, and we couldn't find anywhere to go that would satisfy both of our desires and the ways that we wanted to serve. Either it was something that was really geared towards teaching and Holly could find something to do, or it was really geared towards medical and I could find something to do. But we didn't want to feel like the other one was just sort of tagged along. And so we kept looking and looking and looking. We just kept getting frustrated because it, we just couldn't find anything. It just wasn't there. And we felt like we kept you know, we were willing, we were ready, we kept asking God, where do we go, where do we go, and it just felt like he was ignoring us, and so we got really frustrated, so we decided to do what made absolutely no sense at the time, but we decided just to quit looking, we decided that, you know what, we're going to pray about this, we'll continue to pray about it, but the physical pursuit we're going to put on hold, we're going to take a Sabbath uh, from looking, so we waited, it didn't seem right, it didn't seem productive, it seemed very wrong at the time, but we just waited. And we started feeling like, man, this just isn't, this isn't fair, right? I mean, I went to Atlanta Christian College, and every single week, we always had chapel on Wednesdays. And they would always bring in different speakers and stuff. And for four years, I heard my, my share of missionaries coming through. And I can't tell you how many times I heard the story, well, I never thought that I would do this. I told God I will never go out of the country and live in poverty and I'll never go to Africa, and now I'm a missionary in Africa. Or I'll never go to India, and I'm a missionary in India. I'll never go to China, and I'm a missionary in China. And after a while, you're hearing those stories, and you're thinking, I'll go. <laughs> right? Hello? It just didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. They don't even want to go. And Holly, you know, said the same thing. It just, oh, it's frustrating. Now, I don't want to go as far to say that our situation was like this man and the fact that we felt like we were dealt an unfair situation because that would just, 
be ridiculous and not even true. I mean, our lives were fine. We were living, we were serving, doing our thing. But it, 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 in a degree, it felt unfair. It felt like we were blind. We didn't know where to go. We didn't know what to do. And so we were frustrated. Well, in the case of our man, the blind man, getting back to our story, his life takes a dramatic turn. Pick up with me in uh, verse 6. Having said this, he, Jesus, spit on the ground, gross, made some mud with the saliva, disgusting, and put it on the man's eyes. Are you kidding me? Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, right? I mean, you just spit in my face. Of course I'm going to go wash my face. And he came home, what? Seeing. Now his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg, you know, at the corner over there? What, isn't that the same guy? Verse 9, some claimed that he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man, right? I'm the man. Verse 10, how then were your eyes open? They demanded. Well, he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. Without hesitation, I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is the man, they asked him. Now that's not right. This guy has been able to see for what, three minutes? Pick him out of a lineup. I don't know. I'm just happy I can see. And that's, I mean, that's a great story, right? I mean, a guy born blind is completely kind of written off. And Jesus gives him sight. Everything worked out. It's a great story. Back to our story. After we decided to kind of put everything on hold, we went about our lives just like normal. Weeks after week, just, just kind of went on like normal. And then finally, we were introduced to a man and his wife who actually go here. You might know him. His name is Kobo Solomon. He was here first service, um, and he is from Honduras originally, and he told us about this mission that was in Honduras that you saw in the video called Afe. And he uh, explained to us that he kind of wanted to see if our church would be a church that would be willing to support the mission. That was kind of what he wanted to see happen. He just wanted our people to be involved. And so we agreed to go, being on the mission board. Uh, we took Keith Green with us as well. And so the four of us went down just for a quick um, three-day trip. And when we got there, it was unbelievable, unbelievable trip. Pastor Johnny, as you saw in the video, uh, took us around all over the place. He showed us the school, uh, which is called Afe. We went up to the trash dump, and we actually got to see the, the filth that the people lived in. We saw the hopelessness in their eyes. We smelt. I mean, it was just, you can't explain that experience. And he spent time explaining to us uh, the story of how Afe got its start, it started out just with a handful of kids who actually met in the dump. They would just, it was a beautiful story. They just sit on these old tires as they're taught uh, in class and they just kind of go off to the side. And that's how it got its start. And eventually it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And now it reaches over 150 kids, ranging from first grade all the way up to, to 10th grade. And they're receiving government approved education. It's just a beautiful story. So we got to see all of that. And then he also took us to. The community which he lives in is called Linda Miller. He took us to uh, the church that he's a pastor at. We got to meet a lot of the families. And then he took us to this building. It was a two-story building. 
probably the nicest building in the entire community. And we're out there, and he's talking, and he tells us that it's a clinic. I instinctively look to my wife, whose face is glowing, right? She's been, you know, I did my fair share of trips, but never a, a medical trip. And she always went on these medical trips and was always telling me horror stories about how, you know, it's in the heat of the day. We, we're sitting under these tents. You know, people are miserable, trying to make sure the tents don't fall down. Um, she's also hearing horror stories about any missionary that ever wants to move to a different country and, and start a clinic. They said, oh, the two toughest things you'll ever have, finding the space to build a clinic and getting the materials to build it. And here we stand in front of a two-story building with running water, electricity, that's not even used. Oh, I mean, it just, <laughs> hello? I mean, it just, even I was like, are you kidding me? And so the whole time we're touring this, I'm staring at my wife, who's just glowing, grinning from ear to ear. And I don't even think I ever told her this, but it was at that point that I knew that this place was going to be way more than just a church or just a ministry that our church supported. Didn't know to the capacity, didn't know when it would happen, but I knew that at some point this place was going to be called home. We saw needs. We realized that we had the ability to meet them, hungers that we could satisfy, hope that we could one day instill in these people. And so now the dreams are reality. And in 48 days, which scares me to death to say, we are packing up <laughs> very little <laughs> and moving, uh, moving to Tegucigalpa for an undisclosed amount of time. We have no idea. We're open to whatever and continue to work with the school, further in developing uh, students there, and also starting a clinic with the dream of one day being able to live, or excuse me, leave Honduras and that clinic remain uh, fully functional by Hondurans. So that's our story. And I know I'm a little biased, but I love our story. I love telling our story. It's so much fun to get into a conversation with people when at some point you can work in the sentence, I'm actually moving to Honduras. Because that's not a conversation killer, right? You don't say I'm moving to Honduras and then the next statement, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> that gets things going. And so it's so much fun to get in random conversations with people and allow us to tell our story. But the one thing that we keep having to remind ourselves of is that our story is not done. It's not done. This chapter will close in 48 days, but immediately another one is going to open. You see, because here's the other thing I want you to pick up on today, that as long as there is a breath in your body, your story is still being written. You have a place in God's story, and it's still being written, even today. Now, oftentimes, uh, when I write a sermon, uh, or when I was teaching <laughs> before I quit, um, and anytime I would sit down to write a lesson, typically the two things I write first, always the introduction and the conclusion. I gotta know where I'm starting, and I gotta know where I'm going. All the stuff in between works itself out, right? I gotta know A, and I gotta know B, and all this stuff in the middle just sort of happens. I mean, the conclusion is really the most important part anyway. It's pretty common practice between, uh, among authors as well, that I got to know where I'm going before I can figure out the journey. Well, for us, and not, not us as in my wife and I, but us as Christians, we have the conclusion already. Jesus has already provided the conclusion for your life. Are you interested? Do you want to know what it is? 
Well, he says it in Matthew when he said, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the ending line. That's the goal of your life. This is the, the final word before the credits roll on your life. This is what we work towards. Well done, good and faithful servant. Until that point, our stories are not done. My story is not done. Your story is not done. Our mission is not complete. And everything that happens between the gap, or in the gap, between A and B, is up to you. It's up to you. Now, let's go back to our man. Because his story, although would have had a beautiful ending in verse 12, it's not done. Because you see, any good story also affects the people around you. Any good story is going to affect people around you. Now up to this point, the only thing this man has done is obey Jesus and washed his eyes, right? That's all he's done. And it didn't take twisting his arm to get him to do that. But that's all he's done up to this point. And as we're about to see, he's thrown to the wolves for it. Pick up in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees this man who had been blind. He's still not named, so if that gives you any indication how much they care about this guy. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. You're probably thinking, how many times do I have to say this? Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now you might be thinking, what did he do to break the Sabbath? Well, it's simple. It's ridiculous, but it's simple. He healed somebody. He performed a miracle. He spit, he made mud, and he put it on his eyes. That was work to them. I didn't say it made sense, but it's simple. And for them, this was a big deal. How can you claim to be from God if you can't even keep one of the most important commandments in our law? But others asked a pretty obvious question. Well, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? You say he's not from God, but how can he do this? So simply put, verse 16, they were, they were divided. Verse 17, finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Well, the man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not, still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So now they need witnesses. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Thanks, Mom. Verse 23. That was why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. I don't need to sign off on this. Verse 24. Second time, they summoned the man who has been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Now, you've got to imagine the tension that was existing in this room. They got this theological debate going on about who Jesus is. And obviously, this man has nothing to add to the story. He has nothing he can contribute. 
He's probably off doing his own thing, just amazed that he can actually see. He's probably just taking in the scenery, and here these guys are trying to debate whether or not this healing was a sin. It makes no sense. And so this guy is off on his own, doing his own thing, and these people are convinced that Jesus is a sinner. Now there's something I want you to notice about this part of the story. I want you to notice who is not present. Jesus. It's gone. We don't know where he went. He comes back in the story a little bit later, but he's not present for arguably one of the most difficult moments of this guy's life. Remember, he hasn't really done anything. Everything at this point has been done to him, and now he's just sort of thrown to the wolves, and they're sitting there drilling him about the best moment of his life, completely doubting everything that he's saying. Jesus is not around. His parents have abandoned him, and so here he sits where these guys are trying to disprove everything that has happened to him. He's gone from being blind and extremely dependent on other people to being completely on his own. But verse 25, something amazing happens in this man's life. And I love verse 25. He replied, Again, in verse 24, they say, give glory to God. This is a way of saying, if you don't tell the truth, you are speaking against God. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, love it. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. You can almost add in there, I don't care. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know, I don't care. The one thing I do know is that I was blind, but now I can see. So what's happened here? In this short verse, in these few words that this man speaks, what's happened? Well, very simply, he has taken ownership of his own story. And he affirms that even though he may not be able to answer their questions about who Jesus is, the one thing he does know the one thing that they will never, ever be able to change his mind about. And really, in his mind, the only thing that matters is that I used to be blind, but now I can see. Period. Now that is a powerful story. It's a resurrection of sorts. He owned his own story. He was surrounded by men who didn't care what he had to say, they just kind of left him to the side until they needed him. They were almost treating him like an extra in his own story. And for a moment, Jesus has kind of vacated the scene. And so this man stands alone to face these guys. And he finally realizes that he has something to add to the conversation. And that is that whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter. The one thing I do know is that I was blind. And now I can see. Now, do you think he was dealt an unfair hand? Because here we are, thousands of years later, reading his story and allowing it to change our lives. And everything that Jesus said would happen when he said that this happened, this blindness happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, guess what? It's still happening today. Unfair? I don't think he would say that right now. There's something powerful that happens when we own 
our stories. Lives are changed around us. It's not always the theological debates. It's not always the deep conversations. It's not always the sermons. It's not always the songs. It's not always the things you hear on the radio. It's not always that kind of stuff that changes lives. Sometimes it's just the stories. Sometimes it's just telling people why you decided to take time off of work, to go to another country, to work with, hold, and love on kids who smell like garbage. Sometimes it's just telling people why you skipped a Thanksgiving dinner to go feed homeless people. Sometimes it's telling people why you pray before you eat, why you don't need to drink anymore to feel normal, why you don't look for relationships with other people to feel satisfied. Sometimes it's just telling people that even though your spouse is absolutely driving you crazy, you refuse to leave him or her. Sometimes it's just telling people why you're going to be a few hours late for Sunday lunch because you decided to go hand out clothing to homeless. Sometimes it's just telling people why work is no longer the most important thing in your life, why you took your Saturday to serve your city, and why you no longer fear your future. Sometimes it's just the stories that change lives. Check out this quote um, by Donald Miller. He gave a talk. It was actually called Story. <clears throat> he says it simply. He says, when we tell our stories, we are setting the compasses of the people around us. And stories are the most powerful way to teach. When we tell our stories, the things that go on in and through our lives, that is a way for you to explain to the world, this is what my life is geared towards. My compass is set on this. And when this becomes your life, when this affects your life, your life can then affect others. Everybody has a story to tell. You've heard several today. You heard Haley's story. You heard my wife's story. You've heard our story together. You've heard the story of a man born blind. There are more stories in this room to be told. So the question I want to leave you with almost seems too obvious, but i got to ask it anyway. What's your story? What is going to be your story? When you figure that out, know it, live it, love it, tell it, own it. I, I want to thank you for uh, letting me speak today, Derek. I appreciate the time. Um, I, I don't know that this will be the last time I speak, but hopefully not, um, but probably before we leave. So um, I know I can speak for my wife when we say this place has meant so much to us over the years. Um, it, you, you'll, you'll never know, so I'm not even going to try to go into it. Um, but we love it here. We're going to miss it here. And I just appreciate you giving us the time. If you, if you guys want to talk more, uh, we have a booth set outside. Uh, we love talking about Honduras. I could talk about it for hours. So uh, please come and talk to us if you have any questions about anything. We'd love to, we'd love to, to talk to you. I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to have one more song. Don't leave just yet because Derek's going to come back up and uh, formally dismiss you. Why don't we stand together?